Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine. And today I'm back in the studio with my colleague, Sharon Bessel. Hi, Anagreta. It's great to have you back. As our listeners are probably aware, we have not been together in the studio for maybe two or three weeks now, so it's great to be back here together. Life seems to be getting away from us again. Yes. It, it does, but it's good to be back and we've got an important topic today. Absolutely. So I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School um, and pleased to be back with you, Anagreta. Yeah, it's great to have be back in the studio together. It's always much more fun as a team. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. We're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy here at ANU. Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school, and I'd like to remind our listeners again to check out the degree programs and short courses that are available here at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And so on to today's topic. Some of the most devastating images to come out of Australia during the coronavirus pandemic so far have been from aged care centres. In March 2020, the Newmarch House nursing home in Western Sydney saw 34 staff and 37 residents infected, with 19 people dying, leading to concerns that authorities were failing to protect some of Australia's most vulnerable citizens. Families on the outside were separated from their loved ones in the facility and information was very hard to come by. We've talked on this podcast before about how the COVID-19 crisis has, has ruthlessly exposed some of the existing vulnerabilities in our society. Unfortunately, the situation Australia has seen unfold in aged care during the pandemic is just another in a series of tragedies that have beset the, the system over years. Stories of abuse and neglect in the sector led to the establishment of the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety in November 2018. The Royal Commission held 23 public hearings over 99 days, heard from 641 witnesses and received over 10,000 public submissions. What is clear is that incremental reform will not be enough. What's needed is a system-wide overhaul. In response, the federal government's announced nearly $18 billion worth of additional funding in the recent federal budget. But will this lead to the transformational change that the sector has desperately required? 
So today on the pod, we want to ask, are Australian policymakers on track to overhaul the country's aged care system and how should the government fund these reforms? So, Anna Greta, I'm so delighted to have two excellent people to talk through these issues with us today. I mean, these are such pressing issues for the country. I don't think anyone could have read or watched about the the revelations through the Royal Commission, but some of the other stories um, within aged care and not been really confronted and horrified by them. So it's a really pressing issue. What what do we do going forward? And to talk these issues through with us today, we have Diane Gibson. Diane is Distinguished Professor of Health and Ageing at the University of Canberra. She's held senior appointments in both universities, but also um, across the public, se- public service. She is Inaugural Dean of Health at the University of Canberra and a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. Diane, it's wonderful to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you, Sharon. And we also have Nick Biddle. Nick is Professor at the ANU's College of Arts and Social Sciences, and he's also a fellow in the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute here at Crawford. He is Associate Director of the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods and Director of the newly created and really exciting Policy Experiments Lab. Nick has previously held positions as a Senior Research Officer, as an Assistant Director in the Methodology Division of the Australian Bureau of Statistics, and I think lots of our, our listeners will be familiar with the work that Nick does across a range of social policy issues in Australia um, and has recently released a report on aged care. Nick, great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks Thanks for having me on. So Diane, perhaps we we could begin um, with you and what we heard during the Royal Commission from the media and from other sources um, about the treatment of people in some aged care residences amounts to what, what I would describe as a shocking abuse of human rights. And of course, I'm sure we see some, some very good examples um, of aged care residents behaving very differently. But some of those images and some of those that we saw, some of those stories were really confronting. How did we get to this state of Australia's aged care system, which seems to be so dire? Well, the the Royal Commission, uh, Sharon, did indeed uh, reveal some very dramatic stories, some very negative images, uh, but it drew our attention to what what is essentially a dark history. And I would I would argue there are five key issues, but there are many more. It's a very complicated sector. But uh, to start off, the first one, I'd say we're reaping the consequences of something like forty years of rationing a perspective where the burden of aged care, the need to minimise cost was the driving force in, uh, in what we were doing. The second is the, uh, the Aged Care Act of 1997. And this act contained a number of elements, but in particular, it reduced accountability for the industry so that uh, there was no requirement to document where care subsidies were going. So just as an indication, uh, a year or so ago, that was $11.7 billion of government money going into recurrent uh, care subsidies, but no requirement to say what proportion was being spent on care. It also, and this is a more subtle point perhaps, began a substantial 
push towards consumer-driven care. And that might be something we come back to because it's quite a vexed issue. Some would say that this empowers older people. Others would say that it's an inappropriate strategy. I'd be in the second category. The third element is the expansion of community care, and I date this from 1980 when we had the uh, Subcommittee on Accommodation and Home Care for the Aged, that we used to talk about the aged then. And that ended up with the Maclay Report in 82, which put a great demand forward to expand community care. What's wrong with expanding community care? Absolutely nothing. But what we saw over the following years was just what we saw in mental health and in disability when we moved away from institutional focus to community care, not enough community care, inadequate provision. It's really obvious now where we have a waiting list of 100,000 people for care packages. It was less obvious then because community care was a service that wasn't tied to individuals but it was still an undersupply. Uh, Fourthly, the strong control of the sector by industry. We might even talk about industry capture if we wanted to be bold of the sector. Industry voices are very loud, consumer voices are very soft. I like to illustrate this by talking about the Aged Care Workforce Industry Council set up in 2018 or 2019 to to plan and strategise for a better workforce. It's uh, a council that emphasises the need to work between industry, consumers and the unions, but there are eight industry representatives, one consumer representative and one union representative on that council. And lastly, uh, ageism is something I think we might return to, but that would be the fifth factor that I would set out for you. That's quite a remarkable way to start our conversation today around the aged care sector, Diane. Thank you so much for that framework. Um, Now, having looked at that systems approach, I wanted to bring Nick into the conversation about the recent survey that you've been part of with Tony Mackay here at ANU. You interviewed around 3,200 Australians about their views and experience in the aged care system in Australia. Can you tell us what you found about Australia's community attitudes towards the aged care system? Yeah, so it won't surprise many listeners to to hear that I guess one of the key findings was a real lack of confidence uh, in the aged care system. We kind of talk about a decline in confidence in government uh, over over the years, and there has been a decline in confidence in a range of institutions. But when you compare confidence in the federal government or state and territory governments compared to confidence in the aged care system, uh, the federal government looks really looks rosy, actually. Uh, so about 1.8% of Australians had a great deal of confidence in the aged care, aged care system. So less than one in 50 uh, had what you would say is is the, the type of confidence which we would hope Um a little bit more had a little bit of confidence, but the vast majority of Australians had no confidence in the aged care system. Uh, not only that, but the, age, the confidence in the aged care system is declining and has declined in relatively recent times. So uh, we asked, the last time we asked that question was in November of last year. Uh, and even over those kind of four or five months, uh, there was a decline in confidence in the aged care system. And that's probably due to two reasons. One is the ongoing impact of COVID on those in the aged care system, but also, I guess, the, the Royal Commission and 
and the and the government response as well as the the media um, reporting around the royal commission uh, has really brought to the public's attention uh, some of the the issues and limitations of the aged care system so I guess that that's one of the key findings. Another, I guess, important finding was that thinking of uh, people about their own experience and uh, what they expect to occur in the future, uh, many people are worried about being a burden on their family. So one of the things we asked is, at least for those over 45 years, uh, do you think you'll be a burden on your family when you uh, reach uh, retirement age? And quite a high proportion of people said, yes, uh, they were worried about being a burden. And also a large number of people said they were worried about being able to afford their own aged care. So confidence in general uh, was quite low. Uh, concerns about people's own experience in the future and, and I guess a, a final important point uh, which we wanted to really drill into was the aged care workforce. So you, you mentioned in the introduction that the large uh, inflow of funds uh, into the aged care system, certainly not as large as many people had hoped or asked for, um, but you know, $18 billion over five years is still a lot of money by anyone's uh, measure. But the only way in which that's going to have a demonstrable effect on uh, people's experience or, or a positive effect on people's experience is if the aged aged care workforce is able to expand, uh, if the aged care workforce is able to have a, a positive and a meaningful uh, career, and is if we're able to minimise the amount of churn in the aged care workforce where a large number of people leave the workforce over a short period of time. So what we did is we said, uh, rather than asking people about their own kind of career views or expectations, we said, okay, if you, if you were chatting to an unemployed person now, or if you're chatting to a young person now, would you recommend that they work in the aged care workforce? Uh, and very few people said yes. Between about 5% of people said yes, they would definitely recommend a young person work in the aged care industry. And about 10% of people said that uh, they'd recommend an unemployed person work in the industry. So what that says to me is, is not only a, uh, a lack of confidence in the system as it is, but a, a, I guess a lack of willingness to as an individual yourself or, or when you're helping other people make their decisions about their career, a lack of willingness to, to work in the industry. Nick, there's there's so much there that I think it would be great to, to unpack some of that a little bit. And I think we'd like to come back to that issue of how people view working in the industry. Before we do, Diane, could, could I ask you about your views on some of the findings of, of the survey? And I think this is really interesting in the last of your five points, which you said was around ageism. Um, and we have the, the survey that Nick and Tony Mackey did suggesting that people worry about being a burden on their families. They worry about their own future, but they worry about the, the people they love. What does this tell us about how we view growing old in Australia? And is this a moment when we can start to shift that? <laughs> Well, there's a question for another podcast, Sharon. <laughs> uh, I think that there's a lot of variation in how people view growing older. I, I was I was listening carefully to the the question that Nick and uh, and Tony had had asked. Uh, how do you feel about being a burden at retirement age? Uh, now. Retirement age has become very vague in Australia, but let's say it's between 55 and 68. Uh, very unlikely to be a burden, much more likely to be looking after the grandchildren or whatever uh, might be happening. It's really over 80, over 85 that people start, a proportion of people start to have concerns 
in relation to their health and well-being. So perhaps one part of ageism is that we don't understand ageing very well, our own ageing or other people's ageing. When I talk about ageism, I do believe that there's a proportion of self-directed ageism. And there's some, some amazing research that shows that if you think as an older person you're going to have worse outcomes, if you think older people uh, decline, if you have these negative views, then that's much more likely to happen to you. There's a, there's a, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy in it all. So there's a self-component but there's also a societal component, the way in which the system is structured. And I think the aged care system is a great example of that. And then perhaps the third element is the the interpersonal aspects. And and one example of that is the experiences that older women talk about of becoming invisible. And I was at a community consultation where a wonderful uh, dancer, a woman of about 70, talked about this. The scribe was a woman in her 40s. She kept saying to her, I don't understand, how can you be invisible? (laughs) And so we need to talk about it all more. Absolutely. I have to say, you know, working as a cardiologist, I see quite an extraordinary spectrum of ageing. And I think I'm sure we'll come to this later in our discussion, but we can, as a society, encourage a really uh, extraordinary celebration of the ageing process. It can, it's not all dire. It can be quite an amazing thing. And, and Anna Greta, just speaking as a, as a cardiologist, <laughs> uh, you should also speak for all health workers, perhaps, and all health students. Yeah. And that's the category I left out, how much effort we should be putting into uh, informing and educating and providing access to, uh, for our students yep. to older populations. Yeah. Yeah, and now a, perhaps I'd like to interview you on that. It's a, it's a fantastic <laughs> population of people to look after. I have to say it's probably the dominant part of my, my practice is in a geriatric category um, and it's an extraordinarily rewarding group of people to be caring for. Nick, let's come back to the workforce question. One of the issues that came from the Royal Commission is the issue around the highly casualised and the poorly paid workforce in aged care. Um, And in that context, it's perhaps not surprising that Australians indicated that they weren't going to recommend to young people to work in the industry. But the other interesting element of that was that people who have worked in the industry do see that it's a rewarding role. Can you pull that apart for us a little bit further? Yeah, so a couple of um, points come up in our survey. So one is that, yes, those who are currently in the workforce were far more likely to recommend that someone else work uh, in, in aged care than those who had left the workforce and those who never had worked. So I think in to the extent to which uh, we as a society need to make sure that there's a, uh, a workforce now and a, and a workforce into the future, then the current workforce is actually a good set of advocates for that uh, and can tell not necessarily a, a completely positive story and, and certainly you know, to, to minimise some of the um, challenges uh, in working in the industry. Uh, but certainly it's, it's perhaps less dire than the, the general population might think. And also, I guess those who we kind of had a had a view going into the, the survey that those who had exposure to the industry uh, would have less positive views, not just with regards to the workforce, but with regards to confidence, uh, with regards to kind of concern about their own uh, aging or or or, or aging of their family. And we certainly didn't find that in our data. So we didn't find that that those in the workforce or those who are carers themselves had demonstrably less uh, confidence. Um, so I think there is a uh, 
not a is it not a positive story to tell there's there's certainly uh, in in our survey people talked about some reasons for not encouraging is the it, people working in the industry is is the type of work that, that kind of the, the working conditions uh pay and and salary but it's it's less negative than the general population might think and i think that's a we should as best we can kind of bring to the fore the voices of those who have had that experience uh in in terms of uh, advocating for for a um as you said less casualization and and we see uh i mean since our survey was was undertaken but recently the the issue around uh, people working across multiple uh, positions um uh, multiple aged care facilities and and the challenges which that brings to a um a covid-19 situation so there are issues with casualization there are issues with multiple jobs uh, and there are issues with the the challenges of a of both a physically and a mentally demanding occupation, but it's perhaps not as bad as 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 those outside the industry might think. And it might be for the reasons we were just alluding to that looking after some of these people can be extraordinarily rewarding. Yeah, on a personal level. Yeah, yeah, certainly we find that seventy five percent of people who would recommend someone work in the industry as it was because of the value and the importance of the work. Uh, and we shouldn't, I think there's a danger, we do this with teachers, we do this with doctors, with police that, that or, or firefighters, whatever whatever the, the industry is, that we expect people to put food on the table with altruism. Uh, and I think there's a, a danger of assuming that uh, because it's rewarding that we can underpay and we're going to get a workforce just because of the value of it. We shouldn't do that. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't mean we kind of minimize the 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 value which some, uh, not all, but some see uh, in, in their own work and, and, and is seen by others in the work. Could I just follow on with Nick on this um, this issue of pay and conditions of work because it's such an important issue that, that you raise, Nick, uh, that sense of doing valuable work being a reward in itself. Uh, But then we have a situation where aged care nurses in particular don't have pay parity Mm. with um, nurses working in the acute care sector and we could be talking about hundreds of dollars a week, not 15 or 20. And what kind of message that sends and what we are expecting of those people. And, of course, care workers are poorly paid as well. Then when we think about the conditions of work... Uh, we say that the conditions of work determine the conditions of care. If we want better quality care for older people, we need better conditions of work. And this point of casualisation, I'd like to see us explore more, Uh, not this morning, but uh, statistically speaking. The most recent data we have is from 2016 in the Aged Care Workforce uh, Survey, that says that 9% of staff are casual, but I believe that's unlikely to be true. And I believe that's unlikely to be true because the national average is something like 28 to 29%. The HESTA survey of uh, aged care workforce had 15% casual, and the ABS says 21% of health and community service workers are casually employed. I really doubt these statistics and we need to understand better. We need to understand because many of the casual workers, many of the workers on contract are on minimum hours contracts where they may only be guaranteed something like four hours a week but they're expected to work and be available for many more. This is why people work across multiple 
nursing homes or nursing homes and community care because they can't get the hours they need to feed their families or they can't meet the, get the hours that they need to meet perhaps their visa requirements if they're not permanent residents. So we really need to think about those conditions. And then the impact of staffing shortages on our staff in residential aged care in particular, the recent work that I did with my many colleagues, but particularly Cassia Bale, showed that nurses in the workplace in residential aged care were switching residents 26 times an hour. So the focus of who they were looking after was switching 26 times an hour, and staff altogether were multitasking for 37 minutes in every hour. Now, just imagine the cognitive load apart from, and when you got home, how you'd be feeling. Diane, I, I just wanted to, to tease this out a little bit more in the context of that lovely framework of the five points that you provided at the beginning. And you talked about the industry capture of, of aged care. And I think the picture that you and Nick have painted is a really interesting one. On the one hand, of people feeling quite positively about their work, about feeling that this is a valued profession to be part of. And on the other hand, we have the, the conditions of work that you've just mapped which are really problematic. How much of this goes to the financial arrangements to that industry capture and to what we might see as the, the financialization of care as one of the drivers um, perhaps becomes profit rather than care itself? As we sit here today, there are currently uh, no r- requirements to govern what proportion of government funding can go to profit and what proportion should go to care. But that is one of the things that uh, the government does ha- has said that it, it will move towards addressing. But I don't think we should let the government off the hook here um, entirely. So industry, yes, the for-profit sector, yes, they are set up, after all, to make profits. But what is the what is the government saying to us. It's saying another $17.5 billion over five years. Let's call that you know, $3.5, $4 billion a year. The Grattan Institute said we'd need $7 billion a year to actually meet the requirements. The Royal Commission said as a result of lower than average indexation and in combination with the efficiency dividend that uh, aged care was $9.8 billion in the whole in uh, 2018-19. So there is a real shortfall of funding. And we are below many countries internationally in the amount of money that we allocate to aged care. Yes, industry needs to up its game, but so does the government. I think that's the perfect place for us to stop for a break and to come back in just a moment and tease this out a little bit more and look in um, some more detail at some of the findings from the Royal Commission. So listeners, don't go away. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're still here with Diane Gibson and Nick Biddle talking about Australia's aged care system. And I think now's an excellent time for us to turn to the Australian government's response to the Royal Commission recommendations. Diane, before the break, you were talking a little around the, the funding that's been announced. And in the recent federal budget, the, the government announced $17.7 billion worth over five years. And all but six of the Royal Commission's recommendations have been accepted. Health Minister Greg Hunt described it as a once-in-a-generation reform. But some are saying that the measures fall short, and Diane, I think you gave us some of the reasons for that before the break. According to a report by the Australia Institute's Centre for the Future of Work, the government would need to spend a minimum of $10 billion per year to implement the reforms. Diane, before we talk about funding, I'd like to talk a little bit around what these issues mean, not just for the aged care sector, but for the human beings who live within aged care facilities. And one of the recommendations from the Royal Commission is to increase the amount of time people received for care. And the increase is to 200 minutes over a 24-hour period, which, when you do the maths on this, is, seems still a fairly small number. What do you think are the implications of so little time being spent on care and human contact? Well, that's a terrific question, isn't it? Um, let's just say that the government response does say going to 215 minutes by, I think, 2024. So that's a, another 15 minutes coming. Uh, of course, the average time in residential aged care is just a couple of years. So most of the people, many of the people who are there now won't actually survive to get their their extra 15 minutes, which is a slightly flippant take on this. But it really, I think, is important to understand that there are people now living in these circumstances and every extra year we take is affecting them. When I talked to you before about those 37 minutes an hour of multitasking that nurses and personal care workers do and the 28, did I say 28? 28, I think, switches between residents per hour. That particular residential aged care, that particular home where we did our research, uh, had 245 minutes of care per resident per day on average. So that's a four-star level of care. The 200 minutes is a two- or three-star level. So when I talked about all those switches and the multiple residents and the multitasking, that was in that much higher level of care. So I think we're still well below what we need. We also need to remember that the Royal Commission found 30% of older Australians in residential care were in substandard care and only 15% were in four or five star uh, residential aged care services. Somewhere between 22 and 50% are malnourished. We don't know any better than that because the data are not strong enough. 
And there are 100,000 people on a care package waiting list. So what we're sketching there is a, is a picture of, uh, of undersupply. Even when those people get those care packages, the amount of care that's being provided may well be inadequate. Uh, one of the Royal Commission submissions documented that the amount of money available for the highest level of care package uh, used to provide 18 hours of care, but now only provides eight. And that's a result of the progressive impact of low levels of indexation and the efficiency dividend. So, so we're in a very grim situation, but then you both knew that and Nick has the evidence to prove it. Nick, I, I wanted to, to come back to some of the recommendations around funding and from what we've heard from, from Diane, you know, clearly there is a need for far more funding to go into this sector. The the commissioners um, following the Royal Commission called for an aged care levy to be introduced, though there was some difference between the commissioners in terms of, of how that would, would play out in detail. And this was, was something that the government has so far rejected, saying that instead aged care will be funded by growth in the budget. Nick, in your survey, you asked respondents about their views on the introduction of, of such a levy. What did you find? What were people saying about yeah, that? Yeah, so, so I should also note that the Labor Party has also uh, said that they're not in, at least up in, at least at this point in time, uh, not in favour of introducing a, a levy. So I guess we have a, a bipartisan support, uh, complete opposite to the, the public's views. So we asked a really simple question. Uh, we said an aged care improvement levy, which would be funded through taxation payments, has been suggested to increase funding for the aged care uh, aged care sector. And then we said, would you support a, a 1% aged care improvement levy? And the vast, vast majority of taxpayers, uh, sorry, vast uh, uh, majority of, of adults in Australia said yes, they would. Um, so only about 15% said no, that they wouldn't support a levy. Um, so that's about 85% of people uh, being in support of a levy. Now, of course, uh, when it actually came to their tax uh, bill, they, they might have a slightly different view, but at least in the abstract, people were very supportive of, of a levy, which is dedicated to aged care spending. Uh, and I think that's an important part of the, the the recommendation from the commission is is that rather than funding out of consolidated revenue to have something which is targeted towards the aged care sector. And, and while from a kind of accounting um, perspective, it doesn't really make sense. You can, you know, money's fungible. You can take money from one uh, part of government and, and move it around really easily. I guess the, the perception, the optics of having a set amount dedicated to aged care, uh, which is very hard to reduce into the future, uh, is something which not only the Royal Commission, but also our respondents were in support of. We also gave respondents the option to uh, to say whether they'd they'd supported for just those who are in the top tax bracket or just those in the top two tax brackets uh, or all taxpayers. And still, more people uh, were in support of it uh, being levied on all taxpayers rather than just those at the very top of the distribution. So uh, I guess in general, we find quite consistent 
support for a dedicated levy to fund what people see as a as a system which is in dire need of funding. And and then we we kind of looked at people's responses and we thought, oh, we'll find some differences by age, we'll find some differences by political views, but none of that. Uh, usually when we kind of analyze these kind of tax questions, we find quite a significant variation across the population. But not with regards to an aged care levy. Uh, so there was majority of support for all voters, so those who would vote for the coalition, uh, Labor, the Greens had the highest uh, proportion. But even then, uh, the coalition, um, 82.5% of coalition voters said they were in support compared to 92.5% of Greens voters. So not drastic differences. And then the other thing which we found really interesting is that those who are in most support were young Australians. So young Australians, those aged between about 18 and 34, uh, were the most likely to support uh, an aged care levy. So it's not just those who are um, coming to the age at which they might be in need of care or those who are providing the, the greatest amount of care themselves for, for aged relatives. Uh, it's the young and, and for the most part, the, the, the entire age distribution who's in support of additional funding tied directly to aged care. Diane, there's this extraordinary support for a levy and uh, perhaps we can ask your opinion about whether it's a good idea. But I'm also interested, particularly in the context of the framework you presented at the beginning, about translating this increase in funding into an acceptable standard of care across the aged care services. So how do we ensure that the way in which we fund it translates to meaningful care for our consumers, for our patients, for our families, for our, our society? That's a, that is a very difficult question because uh, there are policy directions that I think are clear to everyone. Clearing the waiting list for care packages uh, is 100,000 people. I have to say I am a bit bewildered about how an extra 80,000 packages is going to clear a waiting list of 100,000 people, assuming that the number of people in need of packages is going to grow. However, that is a, something we clearly need to do. Increasing the amount of care available in care packages and increasing the amount of care being provided in residential care, also pretty obvious. One of the Royal Commission's recommendations is to increase allied health and medical practitioner services in residential aged care, and we know there are huge gaps between the proportion of people in residential aged care who receive those kinds of services and the proportion in the community. And we know that workforce training is a good thing. Uh, I counted five reports on workforce and the need to improve it between 2018 and 2020. But how we do that is another and is a complex question. Fixing workforce pay and conditions is something that the government and industry could do, thereby attracting more workforce, making it easier to stay in the workforce, reducing staff burnout, which is a big concern. But I think the difficult pointy end of all of this comes in the financial structure of aged care that we have built up over decades, uh, the perverse incentives, the lack of incentives to provide quality care, those aged care homes that do provide high quality care are doing so at either reduced profits or losses. 
surplus or non-surplus if they're in the not-for-profit sector. We need to increase and improve financial accountability. But perhaps the thing that's most vexed for me is our regulatory system. And I'm not a regulatory theorist. But what we seem to be placing a lot of faith in at the moment is data. Could I tell you a little bit about the serious <laughs> incident reporting data that came out yesterday? Because I was, I was somewhat enthralled by it and really puzzled. And I'm not being negative here. I'm just was really trying to understand it. So between the 1st of April and the 12th of May, we uh, just received the first lot of serious incident reporting data. 42% of providers reported. There were 4,500 reports of priority one critical incidents, serious incidents during that period. And of those, the Commission for Aged Care Quality and Safety uh, classified almost 2,000 as actually meeting the priority one criteria. They investigated 16. Now, that doesn't mean that's a bad thing. That's just what happened. Diane, can I ask you to explain to us what that means, the priority one serious incident? Because this is quite alarming to hear. So uh, the categories that come into, I can't give you the criteria, I'm afraid, while we're here on air, but the categories that come into this are the use of physical and chemical restraints, which, interestingly, there were only 22 reported incidents of that. And we know from the Royal Commission that there are many, many more, or were. Maybe they have all stopped happening, or maybe they haven't. The other areas were things like uh, unnecessary physical force, um, assault, uh, and my my memory is failing me here, but they are the kinds of that the priority one incidents are ones that are regarded as having to be reported within 24 hours. Priority two incidents will be reported um, in the future, and that's a one-month reporting period. In any case, what do we do with this kind of data, and does it help us with regulation? And that's what I was puzzling over. Just because only 16 were investigated, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem in the system. But what is the data for? And I think what we can say, what we do say when I talk to my regulatory theorist colleagues, the general sense in regulation is that just having the data doesn't make a difference. Awareness by itself is not enough. We need uh, that they, uh, Clifford Shearing, I think, talks about the AMP, awareness, Uh, motivation, and then pathways to improve. Where's our motivation? Where's our passion? Where's our radical uh, group arguing for real change rather than the incremental changes that we are currently talking about? Nick, could I ask you on that, you know, based on on the survey, but also the work you do with, with data, you know, how we bring about the, the passion for change. That yeah, so it, it reminds me, I guess, of the the economic phrase of the the alignment problem, uh, where data is is very helpful and transparency is very helpful, and and certainly across a range of of 
policy challenges in Australia, uh, more open data and more access to data for for governments and for for researchers and and community organisations is is quite important. But where the problem arises is is when when you have a a system where organisations are motivated by the things which we can measure rather than the things which we value uh, in in the system. Uh, so I think just making less than ideal data available and forcing or, or incentivizing uh, aged care providers to respond to a set of incentives around less than ideal data, uh, we've seen that fall apart in many, many systems. Uh, and uh, I don't think aged care is immune from that. So, so I guess what I would kind of add to, to the um, views around um, kind of funding and, and views around kind of how to improve confidence in the system is to be uh, careful about how much reliance we put on uh, indicators which are close to what we're trying to measure but which create perverse incentives. Well, I think we could probably talk for quite a lot longer and I'm particularly fascinated to talk about things like healthy ageing and how we put in place an effective policy platform to really see a celebration of ageing and I have a clinical and uh, professional interest in this. But unfortunately, we are going to need to draw this conversation to a close. We have one final question for, for both of you, which is to reflect on the, your favourite recommendation. What's your number one suggestion to policymakers to improve Australia's aged care system? Maybe, Nick, can we start with you? Uh, yeah, look, I think that's a, um, a devilishly hard question. Uh, and I guess maybe I'll be a little bit self-serving uh, as a as a researcher and kind of reinforce that point before about uh, the the need to make sure that there's openness and transparency with um, what's going on within the aged care system. And, and I think the Royal Commission uh, has done an absolutely fantastic job in bringing some issues to light. But they also talked about some of the struggles they had in in, in finding out about uh, what's going on with the aged care system. And and so I think one, uh, one self-serving recommendation is to really focus on making data available, making data available to the right people and making data available in the right way. Diane, one Nick, recommendation. Nick has a background at the Australian Bureau of Statistics. I have a background at the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare where I set up the aged care unit and the original uh, national data collections. So I think you'd expect me to agree with Nick, but I won't. <laughs> I'm going to say that my favourite recommendation is the one that's not there, and that is the need to improve point-of-care data, particularly in residential aged care, and to focus on how the data can help the resident and the quality of care and how it can affect, uh, how it can help the staff to provide that care. One of my great disappointments in the Royal Commission was that the recommendations 108 and 109 on data are very much about the nat national system, very much about interoperability and architecture, and not very much about the resident. 
I think they are both fantastic recommendations that perhaps raise more questions that we should tease through. We don't have time now, sadly, but I think this is an issue that we will come back to to do a, another discussion on sometime over the course of this year. But for now, Diane Gibson, Nick Biddle, thank you so much for this conversation. It is such an important one. Um, and thank you for the work that you're doing around this system. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. And thank you, Anna Greta. Thank you. So, Anna Greta, I know you're going to have a lot to say about that conversation because this is uh, an issue that's so close to your heart. Um, but, and pardon the pun, the cardiology <laughs> pun there, that, that came up before I even meant it to. Um, but I, I found that such an interesting conversation and I would really love us to come back to some of those issues about healthy ageing that you flagged at the end that I think kind of come out of this conversation. So I think there's a, another conversation we need to have. No, um, it was a really great analysis, both of the system challenges and also the way in which the Australian society views ageing and the enthusiasm that we see in our community to, to see people enjoy that ageing process. I, I have to say that little uh, catchphrase, value caring, kept on flashing through my mind and one we've talked about so many times before, that the way in which we appreciate the role of people who are caring in our society, uh, if we can value that with increasing amounts of, uh, of reward, both for, for the security of work and also for the remuneration, it makes a big difference for, for those who are requiring care and the confidence that we can have in that system. I think Diane put it particularly well uh, that the conditions of work determine the conditions that we provide in terms of the care in within our system. And so really important conversation. So great to have those two with us today. Yeah, look, I think that's right. And uh, I think there's 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 an issue in there too that, it, again, Diane raised around the, the role of industry in all of this. And I think there is that much bigger question of how we think about um, you know, our, our, our approaches to funding, but more fundamentally to how we think about care and how we value care without making it for profit. And I think that's a conversation we really have to have around how we, we think differently about the notion of value. But Anagreta, the other thing that I kept thinking about, and when Nick talked about young people being supportive of the levy to, to improve aged care, the aged care system, I also th kept thinking about research that I've done with children and how they talk about the value they place on intergener intergenerational relationships within their communities and where they have grandparents, that really matters, but where they have older neighbours or older people in their communities, in their lives that they connect with, just how important that is. So I think there's also so much that we need to think about in terms of relationships and connectedness across generations. Mm, absolutely. No, uh, I think very important conversation. So we'll come back to this. Looking forward to coming back to it. Absolutely. Uh, but for now, listeners, thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as we did. Please get in touch with us and let you know, let us know your thoughts on these really important issues. You can reach us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum. Or you can email us podcast at policyforum.net. If you're a Facebook user, the best way to get in touch with us is through our Facebook group. Uh, you can just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you'll find us there. And don't forget to subscribe so you know what we're doing around future episodes. We will be back next week, so do join us then. But for now, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. 
Bye, Sharon. I hope to see you again next week. It's bye-bye from me too, Anna Greta Hunter. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.